Thank you guys for, for tuning in. And if you're ever in the area, we invite you to come down here to Deep Rooted Church and meet some of our awesome people. I believe they're the finest people here in all of Visalia, California. Amen? Well, thank you guys for being here today. I hope that you get something good out of the word today. Um, we're continuing this series that we've been in about emotions. And we kind of took a detour in emotions and we've been focusing on joy, remaining in joy. And how do we stay positive in in this world that, that's filled with negativity. Um, I was just watching TV. I wasn't even watching the news. I was watching TV the other day, and a commercial for the news came on. And just in that 30-second slot, I got depressed just listening to the news. And they, what they did was they said, tune in to whatever, whatever news. Um, and they had these like top headline stories that said, Listen to how about all these stories that affect people and you. And the headline, I was like, how, how does that affect me? It was like someone got shot or stabbed in a neighborhood. I'm like, how does that affect me? I don't even live in that neighborhood. I don't even know those people. And it started, I got, started thinking about how literally everything nowadays, especially the news, is, is pointing you to destruction and death, and, and there's no goodness in it. You know, the news used to be just telling you facts and current events and, and things that, that are, that's happening around the world, and now it's just telling you horror stories. It's just telling you horrible things that are happening. It's not even news anymore, and, and it's just become so depressing to listen to. And there was this bumper sticker one time and it said, if you aren't depressed, it's because you're not paying attention. And it just goes to show how depressing the world is and everything in it. And that's why a lot of people they, who are in the world, they flock to the church because they're looking for something good. They're looking for that diamond in the rough. They're looking for something that can offer them joy, something in this world that can offer them peace and and sometimes they go to their own vices at work for a moment, but they're right back into the same situation. But other times they find the church and they find a good church and they find this church and they know there's something more than this life that I'm living right now. As a Christian, I even ask that question. There has to be more than just what I'm experiencing right now. I'm just as, the, as tired as the world I'm just as depressed as the world. I'm just as sick. There has to be something more. There's a lot of people asking that question, even in the body of Christ. How do I stay positive in a negative world? How do I keep the outside factors from affecting me inwardly? Remember I gave you that airplane analogy, that when an airplane goes up into the atmosphere, up there, the, the pressure and, and the way that the atmosphere works and the, the, the pressure of space, without the proper tools, that plane would get crushed. That tube of metal would get crushed, but it doesn't because inside the cabin, there's pressure. And it's pressure pushing out while there's pressure pushing in. And it stabilizes it and it keeps it um, it keeps the structure of the plane sturdy. And so with our life, there is constant pressures, 
pressures from our workplace, pressures from the devil, pressures from friends, pressures from from current events. There's always pressure in this world that's going to try to crush you. But we have something on the inside that's greater and that causes us to put pressure back on things, keeping us intact. Amen. Jesus was in the garden the night of his crucifixion, and he was on, in, in the garden of, of, of Gethsemane, which is the olive press, the olive press. And he was in this, this state of turmoil and this state of, of, I mean, you think you've had it bad? Just wait until you start sweating drops of blood. It, he was going through it. And the Bible says he was crushed under the weight of what he was about to do. And you have to understand, Jesus did certain things so that we would never have to go through that. Amen? There are other things that he did so we can do, but he did the crushing. He went through the pressing. He went through the the turmoil of the garden so that we could have this power putting pressure back out. Amen? We don't have to be crushed by the world. We don't have to crumble whenever the world puts pressure on us. We can remain positive and we can remain in joy. So we've been talking about Romans chapter 1, and this is where we've been staying, and, and this is where it stemmed from. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, talking about God being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So what was the first thing we talked about? To stay positive in a negative world. How do we remain in this state of positivity, in this this state of joy when the world's putting pressure on us? We glorify him. This is, a, this is a progressive list of steps of that, that people take before they become to this place where they have no more conscience of God. They have no more discernment of, of right and wrong. They become this hardened heart. Therefore, they cannot receive the things of God anymore. And I believe if we reverse the steps, if we do the opposite of these steps of, of leading us to a path away from God, we can remain in the fullness of God. Amen? We can remain in the joy. Jesus said, I'm leaving my joy with you so that your joy would remain, meaning to continue. So I believe if we do the the opposite of these things, that'll enable our joy to continue. Going on, he says, they did not glorify glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. So what do we have to do next? Remain thankful. Even when things look tough, there is still something to be thankful about. Even when we can't see the end of the, of the tunnel, there's still something to be thankful about. There's always something that God's trying to do in our life, no matter the circumstances, for us to focus on and say, Lord, thank you for protecting me from this. Lord, thank you for keeping me from this. Thank you, Lord. Even even. In the story of Job, people go to that story, they flock to that story to try to cope with their life circumstances, and they try to see, say, well, look at all the things that, that Satan did to Job. Yeah, but at the beginning of the story, Satan went to God and said, I can't touch him. There's a hedge of protection around him. 
meaning God's been protecting them all of your life. God's been protecting you all of your life. And even the little things that came through, thank God for the hedge that kept the, kept the big things out. Amen? There's always something to be thankful about, even if you're thankful for what God's taken you out of, if you're thankful for what he's already done for you, and being thankful for what he's going to do. It's called faith. Amen? So now we're moving on to the third one. It says, they became futile in their thoughts. The King James Version says, they became vain in their imagination. They became vain in their imagination. What does that look like? What does it mean to become vain in your imagination? It doesn't just mean thinking dirty thoughts. It doesn't mean thinking about something that you shouldn't be thinking of. Being vain in your imagination means that your imagination is no no longer working for you. It's working against you. Here's something you probably never thought of. Your imagination does not have a neutral to it. It's either working for you or it's working against you. There is no middle ground. It doesn't go on standby. It's not idling until you decide for it to work. It's either going to work for you or it's going to work against you. And if you don't understand that, chances are it's working against you. If you don't know how, that you can decide how, what it does, it's probably working against you. In fact, the Bible talks about this, this word imagination. It mentions imaginations two times, imagination one time, and imagine one time in the whole Bible. And every single time it's referencing imagination, it's in a negative way. It's in a, a, a way that, that led to destruction, a way that was vain. And so the Bible even connotates imagination as a negative thing in the Bible in, their, in its context because they weren't using it for their advantage. They weren't using it for the good. I believe your imagination is just, it, it's your thoughts, it's your will to do something, it's future things that haven't even happened. It's being able to think and conceive something in your mind. That's how Disneyland was created. Regardless how you feel about that place, Disneyland was created in Walt Disney's mind, his imagination. He imagined it, and boom, that's what happened. Nothing can happen in this world without you first thinking about it. Newsflash, you don't just cheat on your spouse out of the blue. You thought about it, and it came to pass. You don't see things happen without it happening in your imagination first. If you're writing this down, write down this first point. You have to understand the power of your imagination. The, understand the power of your imagination. We dealt with this a little bit during um, one, a couple of our series, our, our Mind Renovation Life Transformation series. We dealt with it there. Um, we dealt with it a few weeks back. I was talking about um, your imagination, and, and really because the, your, the, your mind, your imagination, that is one of the most, if not the most, powerful tool we have on this planet. It's more powerful than any book. It's more powerful than money. It's more powerful than people. Your imagination is the most powerful thing on this earth, and I'll prove it to you. 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, we read this last week, Peter said, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. We were talking about how you have to have a memory to be thankful for what God's done for you in the past. Without remembering what God's done for you, you can't be thankful for what he's done. You have to remember what he's done. And remembering takes place where? In your mind. You have to think about it. If I asked all of you to close your eyes right now, and actually, let's do this. Everyone close your eyes. Let's do this little exercise today. Now, if I said think of a dog, I'm sure all of you guys are thinking of a dog that you know, a dog that you've seen, a dog you've petted, a dog that's in your life to some degree. You're thinking of that dog. Now, if I said think of a, a big black Labrador, every one of you is thinking of a Labrador. But before, you were thinking of many different dogs because I didn't specify which dog it was. You used your imagination to think of that dog. Now, now think of a Supra box. You probably have no idea what that even looks like. You can't even imagine that because you have no idea what it is. See, I know what that is because it's a real estate thing. It's a little box that you put on a door, and it keeps all the keys in there so people can access it and enter it. It's a super lock box. But the point was, when you thought of a dog, you can open your eyes now, <laughs> lest you fall asleep. When you thought of that first dog, I can guarantee you, your dog was different than your dog. Guaranteed. But the moment I said a black Labrador, what happened? You guys thought of a black Labrador because you, you're thinking about what was spoken. You're thinking about what's happening. It's your imagination. Now, Peter, he stirred them up by reminding them everything that God's done for them. Reminding them by way of remembrance and stirring up their faith. But that takes place in your imagination. In, in, in the, this translation of, of, of Peter writing that he stirred up their minds, that word mind is translated imagination, and that word is also can be used as conception. That the mind is the place of conception. It's the spiritual womb where things are birthed from. Again, nothing that you can do in this life is possible without you first thinking you can do it. And there's proof to that because there are people who, who can't do a simple task because in their mind, they don't believe they can do it. There's this guy who grew up with a really harsh dad and his dad told him over and over again, uh, he would like work on screws and, and nuts and bolts and stuff. And whenever he would try to, to put on a, a screw, he would always uh, cross thread it. And so his dad would harp on him and tell him, you're never going to get this right. You're always cross-threaded. You're, you're never going to be able to screw this in. And for his whole life, he could never screw in a single thing because he would always cross-thread it. His dad put this mentality of you can never do it, so he never saw himself doing it. And be, How easy is it to thread something on? Easy. Even if you cross-thread it, just unscrew it and screw it back in. It's easy. 
But because he never could see himself doing it, he never did it. Until you can imagine things to happen, you'll never see it happen. There was a woman who was praying, uh, came up for prayer, and she was asking for healing in her eyes as she was blind. And the, the minister, he prayed over her, and after he was done praying, he asked her, can you see, or what do you see? And she opened her eyes and said nothing. And he said, I didn't tell you to open your eyes. Close your eyes. And so she closed her eyes, and he prayed over her again. He said, what do you see? And she opened her eyes and said nothing. And he said, close your eyes. I didn't tell you to open them. And he prayed for her again and said, what do you see? And she opened her eyes again and said, nothing. And she's like, how am I supposed to be able to see if I can't open my eyes? And he told her, you have to see in your heart first before you can see in the natural. He prayed for her one more time, said, close your eyes. She closed them and he prayed and said, what do you see? And she said, I see trees and I see clouds and I see this and I see that. And he said, now open your eyes. And she opened them and she was healed. So you, you have to conceive in your heart before you see it in the natural. It's conception. And everything that conceives comes to, to flourishing. Everything that you think of, the Bible says, he says, as you think in your heart, so shall you be. However you're thinking, that's the way your life's going to go. So there is power in your imagination. You have to be able to understand and use your imagine, imagination for you. Otherwise, it's always going to work against you. I'll give you a reason why your imagination, is def is, its default setup is against you. Want to know what it is? When you feel a symptom or you see something happening and you're worrying and you start to Google it, you just gave yourself a death sentence pretty much. Anyone ever done that before? Or you Googled something and then you started worrying, oh my goodness, what happens if this happens? And and what happens? What if this is true? And what if I'm dealing with this? And now this is going to happen. Oh my gosh, if I have this, then I'm going to die. What are you doing? You're using your imagination. Because it's not actually happening to you. You're imagining it happening. So just by default, your imagination is, is, is trying to work against you. That's why it's so important that we have to renew our thinking, renew our mind. In Genesis chapter 11, the Bible says in verse 6, this was the people um, building this giant tower called Babel. And they tried to reach the heavens and, and get to the Lord and, and do it in their own strength, and the Lord wasn't pleased by it. And he said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. This is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. The King James says, nothing that they've imagined to do will be restrained from them. Imagination. These people were so in one accord with each other to build this tower to reach the heavens, which is physically impossible. And they were so determined. They all imagined to do this, and God said, nothing that they imagine to do will be refrained from them. In other words, there's nothing I can do about it. Their imagination is so powerful, 
I have to stop them somehow. And so God, he distributed all their, to all of them different languages, and so they couldn't understand each other anymore. And, and then they were scattered ab- abroad so that they couldn't work together. They didn't understand what to do. God was threatened by mankind's imagination. That's how powerful it is. Even God, Almighty God said, uh-oh, we got to do something about this. Because their imagination, nothing will be withheld from what they imagine to do. That's powerful. You have to understand the power of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 in the King James, it says this, For we walk after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. What does that mean? It means though we're living in this world, we're living in the natural, we're living in carnal realities, We don't war after this natural flesh. We don't war after natural circumstances. If someone comes against me and argues with me and tells me that I'm some hypocrite and I'm this false preacher, I'm not warring against that person. I'm not going to fight them because it's a spiritual battle. It's something that's taken place in a spiritual reality, not here in the flesh. And then he says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty. In other words, if you're using carnal weapons, they're not as mighty as these weapons. These weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Do you know what a stronghold is? A stronghold is a a thing in someone's mind that they run behind for protection. It's when people put up a wall. You ever talk to someone before and addressed an issue or a concern in their life and and you try to talk to them nicely and controlled and have a good conversation to fix the problem, but then that person just puts up a wall and gets angry? Are you that person? (laughs) That's a stronghold. It's, it's, It's a place that in your mind, you've already put that defense mechanism up, and so you run behind that. You run behind your preconceived ideas in your mind. It's a stronghold. And the Bible says that our weapons that we use to, to war pulls down those strongholds. I see it in the church all the time. I'll meet these awesome people, amazing people for the Lord. Pastors. There's a, a pastor friend of mine that I love, and he's a great, great man of God. But the moment we start talking about faith, the moment we start talking about prosperity, the moment we start talking about healing, he puts up a wall and says, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 that's not right. That's, that's not right because this happened in my life. So the word's not true. That's what they're saying. And he says, and they put up these walls of defense. And no, no matter what you say, they have this fortress, this stronghold that they hide behind so that they don't get offended or so that they don't experience hurt because they once tried it before and it didn't work. So I'm going to protect myself now. That's a stronghold. And the Bible says we have weapons to pull them down. In other words, we're not, we're not forcing them to believe it, but we're breaking down those barriers one by one by one. How do we do that? By demonstrating the power of God. These are the weapons we have. Then the next one, it says this, the next verse, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God 
and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the weapons of our warfare, they pull down strongholds. They help others see the truth. But the second thing they do is they cast down imaginations. This is one of the instances I was talking about where imaginations used negatively. We cast down imaginations, but not just that. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We cast them down. Both of those things are those, those weapons that we use cast down two things. The imaginations and all the thing that exalts, everything that exalts itself against God. Those two things are areas in our mind. They deal with our mind. The battle is not outwardly. We're not fighting flesh and blood. We're not wrestling with each other. We're dealing with a spiritual battle right between these. You don't have to cast out the demons and, and, and pray and, and ask for God to rend the heavens and to pour down a blessing. All you need to do is fight this battle here first. Just worry about what's happening here. Don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about what so-and-so said. Don't worry about what you heard. Don't worry about the judgment. Don't worry about anything else but in between here. Because that's where the battle is. And if the devil can tell you, nope, it's not there. It's out here. Fight people. You've lost. You've, you've lost the battle. You've lost the war. Because the battle is not with people. The battle is not with ex- external things. The battle is in between your ears. It's in your mind. And so if you can understand that we've been given these weapons to cast down bad imaginations, vain thoughts, thoughts that exalt themselves over God. I'll give you an example. You go to the doctor. You're not feeling well. The doctor says, boom, you have cancer. You start thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. There's nothing that's going to happen. What do I do? That thought immediately exalted itself over God because God said, I heal all things. I am your healer. Anything you come to me for has already been done on the cross. That report says, I don't care about your God. This is your reality. It exalted itself above God. So what's your job? You cast it down. You pull it down. You say, nope, thought, get behind me. Jesus even told the disciple, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. You tell those vain imaginations where they need to go. It says pulling them down under obedience to Christ. If those thoughts aren't obeying what God said, they don't belong in your mind. You can't control what a, when a thought comes, but you can control how long it stays. You can't control if a bird flies over your head, but you can control if it builds a nest on your head. You don't have to let it do that. And with every thought that comes, it says every thought, bring it under obedience to the Lord. You have that power to decide how long a thought stays. Hmm. Thank you, Lord. In James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one's tempted. Say, each one. Each one, each one is tempted. Say, I am. I am. 
I am tempted when I am drawn away by my own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, where does desire conceive at? In the mind. Where does the desires live? In your heart, your mind, in your knower, in your thinker. That's where it lives. You don't desire. I mean, you, 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 you desire in the mind. That's where you desire. It says, when I've been drawn away from my desires and I'm enticed, that's when I'm tempted. Then, when desires conceived, it gives birth. Now, it says it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now, let's, let's, let's put it into a different perspective. Let's put fear into this, not sin. This is talking about when you've been tempted by something evil, and then you fall into sin. But let's, let's throw in fear, like that report I was talking about. You go to the doctor, the doctor says this, boom. Once you've believed the report of the doctor, fear enters in. You haven't been drawn away by your own lusts and desires. You don't desire the symptom. You don't desire the report. But what has been, what drawed you away was the fear. And when the fear enticed you, you fell into fear, just like you fall into, into sin. You fell into fear. And when fear is conceived, something is birthed from it. See, fear, just like sin, fear Every emotion that you'll ever experience is conceived at some point in your mind. Everything. So if you want to remain in joy, you, you can't, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to be blunt. You can't have sex with fear if you want to give birth to joy. You have to have joy conceived in the mind to, to birth joy. But when you have fear being conceived in your mind over and over again, how do I do that? By watching the stupid news, by watching what the world's putting out, by listening to so-and-so who's not even a believer tell you about all these symptoms, by getting all the garbage in your mind, you're conceiving fear over and over and over again. What do you expect is going to be birthed at the end of this? You'll have a quadruplets of fear. How do you reverse it? Conceive something better. Sin conceives in the heart. Fear conceives in the heart. Joy conceives in the heart. Faith conceives in the heart. See, everything that you, have, that you are birthing, everything you're experiencing, Proverbs says, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. There's power in your imagination. And you have control over it. Man, how good is our God for giving you control over this crazy power? Say, I'm, I'm going to make you and I'm going to make you with this part in your brain that thinks. I'm going to put that in you. And then I'm going to give you power to control it. <laughs> Whatever you do with it, that's up to you. You can use it for good. You can use it for bad. But I'm going to give you control over your mind. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. We can control what we think about. Has anyone ever told you that before? You can control what you think about. 
Isaiah says he will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. If your mind's not on him, it's because you don't trust on him. And because you don't trust him, there's no peace. You want to stay in joy? You got to keep your eyes on him. You got to get every high thing that exalts itself against God, bring it down underneath obedience to the Lord, and put back into its place the word of God where it needs to be in your life. Thank you, Lord. The definition for imagination is the act or power of forming a mental image of something not present to the senses or never before wholly perceived in reality. I go back to that dog illustration. You guys thought of a dog in your mind at some point. It wasn't here. Did you see a dog barking around? No. But in your mind, you perceived something that was not present, right? Well, every single thing that fear tries to tell you is real, if you took a step back and looked at everything from a different perspective, you'd realize it's not even here. What, what fear is trying to present as real isn't even a reality. It's, it's a what if. It's a maybe this happens in the future. We don't take risks because we're afraid of what could happen. That's thinking of something that's not actually here. It's thinking of something that's, that's made up in your mind. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Are you receiving something today? If you're still taking notes, write this down. You need hope. You need hope. Romans 8, chapter 24, says, or Romans chapter 8, verse 24 says, we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I believe hope is the Bible's way of, of defining a positive imagination. A positive. Remember every... Pretty much every instance of imagination in the Bible is referring to something bad. We cast down imaginations, vain imaginations. But with this, it's saying we're hoping, we're saved by this hope, but a hope that we see, why do we hope for it? It's right here. You don't have to imagine it. But what you, ha you have to imagine a hope that you cannot see, right? The hope that oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to see God Almighty in his glory. I can't wait to, to be in heaven and see all these people and, and, and talk to Abraham and talk to Moses and talk to all the great men and women of faith in the Bible. I can't wait. I can't see them right now, so I hope for that. It's using my imagination. But I, I can't hope for something that's right here. Because it's here. Why do you have to hope for it? So I believe that that's a positive imagination. Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Another translation says, faith is the confidence, the assurance, the title deed to things hoped for, the evidence of things 
not seen. Again, it's, it's dealing with this, this reality that it's not here right now. I cannot see it, but I believe it's there. It's hope. It's a positive imagination. Mm. Hope isn't just wishing. Hope is actually believing. It says faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, if you hope for something, faith has to accompany it. If you're hoping to see your healing, faith needs to accompany it. Faith is the substance of that hope. Meaning it's, 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 it's what makes the things you hope for actually come to pass. The things that you imagine in your head, you can't just imagine, well, I can see myself healed, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to believe for it. I can see, but I'm not going to renew my mind to it. I'm not going to do any of that. It, faith needs to accompany hope. They need to come together. Number three, keep your mind on Jesus. I read this earlier, and you can read it on the screen. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. How do you do that? How do you keep your mind stayed on him? How do you keep your focus on him and not on everything else? He's not here. We can't see him. We can't talk to him. We can't shake his hand. How do we keep our mind stayed on someone we cannot see? By staying in God's word. By keeping his word at the forefront of my mind. Now, when Stephanie and I were, were barely dating, she lived over in Tulare, and I live on the very north side of Visalia. So I had to drive an entire city all the way to go see her every single day for two years. If that was a business, I would have had a lot of tax write-offs for gas and deductions. But, I, I mean, I drove pretty much every day to her house. And, or, or I went to her house, picked her up, and came back to my house and then took her back home. It was a drive. But it was a, it was a long, long drive. And, I mean, we saw each other pretty much every day. But the times that we didn't see each other, how did I keep my mind on her? Hey, what are you doing? Do you want to see me tomorrow? Do you want to go to dinner, dinner tomorrow night? And we would have this communication. And then at the end of every single night, we would get our phones and we'd put them on speaker and we'd be on the phone all night long. And then we'd fall asleep and then wake up and we'd start on the phone together. And that was our relationship. We always just wanted to be in communication with each other, even when we weren't seeing each other, even when we were apart from each other. And I mean, if, if Jesus had a phone, that would be pretty cool. But he has the word. He has the word. He doesn't need to text you anything. He already texted everyone everything right here and then said, all right, end, period. Don't bother me. Here it is. He already gave us everything we need to know. So how do you stay on him like a relationship, how I stayed on her? My mind stayed on her. We were in constant communication. I thought about her all the time because we were always talking to each other. And this is his way of talking to you. People say, I have a hard time hearing from God. 
Why? He wrote the whole thing right there. What do you want? You want him to yell from the mountains and scare the whole city just for you? You know, one time I was over at the gas station on Acres in Cyprus. At Flyers, I think it's a Flyers gas station. CBC is right there. Cigna is right there. I was filling up my gas tank one time, and, and I don't even know what day it was or what time it was. I was just filling up my gas, and I wasn't paying attention to anything. I was minding my own business and watching the dollars go up and the gas go up. And this was a few years ago, so gas was still a good price. And then out of nowhere, I was filling it up. I hear this booming loud voice and it like startled me. I almost dropped the thing out of my, out of the gas part of my car and it startled me. My heart was pumping. I was like looking around like, what the heck was that? And then I looked over at CBC's football field and there was a game going on. It was the the overhead commentator announcing one of the players. And I just started thinking, man, if that alone startled me, imagine God speaking in a loud, booming voice. How crazy would that be? That was insane. So that put into perspective, all right, Lord, thank you for speaking to me through your word and through your quiet Holy Spirit and not through a loud voice because I would die if I heard something like that. It was just the football thing was loud for me and it scared me. I can't imagine hearing God's giant voice, his Matthew. I can imagine it kind of sounds like mine. I'm created after his own image, vocal cords and all. But you keep your mind on him by reading his word, standing on the word, again, putting every thought under the obedience of Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Proverbs 23, I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Again, your life is going the exact way that, that you're thinking. Your, your dominant thought is, is directing the way your life is going. Just like how uh, you can't have a pregnant lady drink this and then have another lady drink it and expect to get pregnant. That's not how it works. I can't piggyback off of someone else's faith. I can't piggyback what Jeff told me yesterday and hope it works for me. I have to plant it in my heart and conceive it in my life. I can't just hear it. I can't just stand next to someone and and rub some of that anointing on me. I need to have it for myself. You need to have it for yourself. This is great. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembly of the church. Don't forsake this. But this isn't enough. It's only once a week for five hours. It's not enough. You need to continue this on your own. After we leave today, you go home. You get the word. You study what, I, what we preached about. Find something else to, to study, whatever. Just study the word of God. Monday morning comes around. You have work at 8 o'clock. Get up at 6 o'clock. Get up at 6 o'clock. Read the word from 6 to 7. Make breakfast and go on your day. Get the word in your heart as much as you can. You need to conceive it for yourself. You can't just piggyback off of someone else's experience. If I can have the band come back up. Thank you, Lord. There was a a time in Jesus' ministry where, in all honesty to, to most people, it would have looked like a failure 
to the ministry. Imagine this great man of, of, of faith and this great healer. Imagine you heard so-and-so healing minister is coming to town and he heals everybody and he comes and he does his service and you come up for prayer and he lays your hand and not a single person gets healed. Not a single one. Thousands of people coming. Not a single person gets healed. People would consider that a failure. Well, Jesus had a similar experience where he was going back to his hometown. He was healing people, casting out devils, preaching, doing the work of the ministry. Then he comes back to his town and he sees the people and the people who said, isn't that Jesus, the carpenter's son? What's he doing over here? Who is he? I saw him when he was 12 years old pretending to preach at the temple. What, what is he doing? And it says in verse 5, he, he could do no mighty work there except lay hands on a few, which is more than what most people are doing. Except lay his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. But he couldn't do any mighty work there. Not because Jesus was powerless, because the people weren't expecting the people could not get the image. It was his hometown. They couldn't get the image of hometown Jesus out of their head. I'm blessed because I have a family that receives the word from their grandson, from their nephew, from their cousin, from their son, from their son-in-law, from their brother-in-law, from every family relation you can think of I'm able to minister to them. In most cases, family won't listen to you, let alone you being the younger one. I'm blessed. But the people in his life, they only imagined who he was growing up. Little baby Jesus whose diaper had to be changed. Baby Jesus who probably cried because he was hungry. Who is this guy? Jesus? You're telling me Jesus is the Messiah? No way. You're telling me he can heal? No way. I, know, I knew him when he was 10. I knew him when he was 13 years old running around the streets. I knew him. There is no way that that little boy can be the Messiah. He could do no mighty work. They didn't conceive the truth. They had a vain imagination. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him, neither were they thankful. And they had a vain imagination. I'm going to give you one last story. It's about David, King David. Before he was King David, he was shepherd boy David. And in, in uh, 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel chapter 17, the scripture says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. David was standing in front of, in front of Goliath. The Bible, people and scholars say that Goliath was somewhere around 12 to 13 feet high. And David was this little shepherd boy, 13 year old at the most, but this small, standing in front of a Goliath that was probably that big. And he says, surely this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And all he had on was his, his cloth, maybe a sash. 
and a little slingshot with five smooth stones. Well, here's Goliath with all of his armor, armor that probably cost a fortune, a sword that probably weighed more than David himself, and his entire Philistine army behind him. And here's David. God will deliver you into my hand. But then he goes on. I want you to look at this. He says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and I will take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What did David do? He imagined this. He said, you know what? I'm not going to just kill you, Goliath. I'm going to slay you, and then I'm going to chop your head off just for good measure. Jump down to verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried, ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But... There was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, killed him, and cut off his head with it. He said exactly, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He imagined it, and he set out, and he did it. Then it says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I can't, I don't believe this just happened out of chance. David saw exactly what he was going to do in his mind. Then he did it. If you want to remain in joy, you have to conceive in your mind. You have to conceive joy at the beginning. Then you'll birth joy. You'll reap joy. Thank you, Lord. I said I'd give you one more scripture, but I have another one. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had left him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For the land that, the, for the, all the land which you see, I will give you and your descendants forever. Now, think, just think about this. Can you, use, can you use your brain and your head other than a coat rack for just a, or a hat rack just for one moment? Think about this. God told Abram, Look up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Look as far as you can see, northward, eastward, southward, westward, to all the land you can see. I will give it to you, not just to you, 
all of your descendants forever. Do you know who you're a descendant from? You're Abraham's seed. I'm Abraham's seed. We are all descendants of Abraham. Now, the human eye can probably only look about eight or nine miles before the curvature of the earth starts to happen. How is it possible for Abraham or Abram at the time to see Visalia, California? I'm not making... The Bible says, God said, I will give you all the land that you can see to you and your descendants forever. We're here today because of Abraham and what he saw. If it was only limited to what he could naturally see, we'd be stuck over there in that little tiny place. All eight billion of us would be in that little concentrated place that was limited to his vision. He had to see with something else. He saw in here. But God said, look at the, the, the sand on the ground. Look at the stars in the sky. So shall your seed be. As many people, as many stars that are in the sky, as much sand that's on the ground, those will be the number of your descendants. Abraham needed to rely on something not natural to see all the land that God would give him and his descendants. I hope you're seeing this, the power of the imagination. The last verse I want to give you, Hebrews 11, says if they would have truly, if they would have called to mind that country from which they came out of, they would have had an opportunity to return. This is talking about Abraham. Talking about him and Sarah leaving the place that, that they were at, where God said, leave, get out of your tent, leave. If they would have brought back to memory, if they would have remembered where they came from, they would have had the opportunity to return to it. You ever asked yourself, man, I wish we were back in the good old days. Remember the good old days when gas was low, we had a good president, and the economy was, was thriving. Remember the good old days in 1990? Remember the good old days in 2000? Careful. Because that might cause you to stop moving forward. You're imagining the past. Start imagining the future. Start using your imagination for what's to come. Let me tell you, church, we're living in the good old days. These are the good old days. Amen. We're going to get to heaven one of these days and go, man, remember the good old days? Remember back in 2010? Remember back in 2020, the good old days? Remember the good old days in 2030? Remember the good old days in 2045? Our entire life, when we get to heaven, will be a good old day. And that day when we're in heaven is going to be the great day, the best day ever. Don't get stuck by imagining the past because it'll cause you to not look towards the future and be expecting and be hopeful for what God will do then. Amen.